Hello and welcome to From the Ground Up with Mark Weller. I'm Matt Rienzo. Joining me each week will be Mark Weller, founding partner and president of Weller Development Company. Mark, what is up today? How are we doing? Oh, we're doing great. We're making a lot of progress on our, on our project in Baltimore, and we couldn't be more excited to be uh, back here at the table talking again. Yeah, we've got a great show lined up. Um, we're just really pumped for today's podcast, and I know you are too, Mark, because uh, today's guest is near and dear to your heart. So I think you should do the intro today. Well, you know, this is, it's an honor for me to uh, be able to uh, uh, introduce Adrian Fenty, one of my great friends. I've uh, been friends a long time. Um, I met him back in, I want to say 2004, and uh, eventually became the mayor of the uh, the city of Washington, D.C. in 2007 to 2011. And I was really building my career in the early 2000s when I met him. And I always I always really appreciated him. Um, he was uh, he was an honest uh, an honest guy, and he, he had really great thoughts about where the city should be going. And he didn't just talk about it, he actually did it. And, uh, you know, that's the difference between him and, and a lot of previous uh, previous leaders in the District of Columbia. And so underneath him, um, what I saw was just incredible change, uh, just really incredible, positive forward change uh, in the city of Washington, D.C. So it's really incredible to have Adrian here today talking with us. Awesome. So having said all that, let's get right into it and welcome Adrian on the show. Adrian, how are you doing today? Excited to have you on. Thank you. No, I'm also very excited. Um, Mark is one of my favorite people. He's a doer, uh, one of a kind. So, Why is Mark one of your favorite people? Elaborate on that a little bit. Gladly. Um, first, when I met Mark, we were both young guns. Uh, I was a young, aspiring politician. And he was kind of the next generation of real estate developers in, uh, in D.C. And um, we, we both thought that D.C. You know, just had the most potential out of any city in the world. And so we, we kind of bonded around that. Um, but we thought that there was, you know, a lot of people who were being left behind, a lot of neighborhoods being left behind. So we kind of got together and started to figure out ways that we could we could rebuild those neighborhoods. Um, and uh, so it was just great to have his energy, uh, his kind of, you know, glass half full outlook of, uh, of what was possible. So all those things. And, 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 you know, you always are kind of have a, special place for people who are with you in the beginning and mark was you know a supporter of mine you know way before i got elected mayor so you know that, that those are the reasons that's great and and you know this podcast is really we started it to teach people about the real estate industry and about tangential industries uh, surrounding real estate um, but also to really focus on people and projects and companies that have built themselves up from the ground up hence the name uh, and your career has really had a pretty meteoric rise. Um, and so you certainly fit that mold and a lot of similarities between work we're doing in Baltimore and what you and your counterparts in, did in Washington, D.C. Um, so quickly, first question is, you know, you're now the managing partner at Mac Venture Capital, um, a seed stage venture capital firm. Um, but I know that doesn't accurately reflect really everything that you're working on because you're unequivocally a renaissance man and have your hands on a lot of different things. Um, you're also doing business development for Perkins Coie. And so tell us kind of what Adrian Fenty's up to these days. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned, you know, what, you know, what I do at, at, at Mac, which is, you know, seed stage venture capital right out of Silicon Valley. You know, I'm in Menlo Park. Uh, as we speak, really, you know, two miles from the Stanford campus. Um, 
so, you know, that is really in, in large measure, you know, what I spend uh, a huge amount of my time on, certainly, you know, full time plus. Um, so what we do is we invest in seed stage technology companies that, you know, we think are going to be, you know, have a billion dollar valuations and just as importantly are very impactful uh, and important um, companies in but uh, but they run lots of different verticals. We have like thin financial tech com- tech companies. We have logistics companies. We have you know, health tech companies. We even have some deep tech and aerospace companies. And uh, and we're you know we're we're very look- we're looking for those companies that are going to break through and be important for years to come. So that's that's pretty much uh, the lion's share of of my day. Um, uh, in the, and as you mentioned, you know, I, I spent 10 years in politics in Washington, D.C., so this is kind of my, I just finished my 10th year in the private sector, so I'm feeling very balanced right now. That's good, Adrian. Yeah, so, so Adrian, let, let me ask you this. Like, you know, we're doing work in Port Covington in, in Baltimore, and very similar to even projects that we worked on. South Dakota Avenue and Riggs Road was not as big, but still transformational, but transformation across all of the District of Columbia you know, in the 2000s. And, um, you know, what was it like? You know, this is, I have my own version of it being, being who I was at that time, but what was it like being such a major part of the transformation in Washington, D.C.? I mean, it was, the, the, you know, it was the job of a, of a lifetime in, in, in every way. I mean, a lot of that is because I was, you know, I was born you know, to, to, to be in politics. It's just, it's in my blood. I'm a, I'm a political junkie. Um, you know, and, and and real estate, just like everything else that I did as mayor, is uh, it, it's an opportunity to if, to do macro change, to it, to change the lives uh, for for hundreds, maybe even thousands of people at once. Um, and it, it's really funny. Like I didn't really know much about real estate at all um, before I was in politics, but even on the city council, and certainly as mayor. I mean, as mayor, to be honest with you, one of my jobs was real estate developer. One of my jobs was to make sure that really big, important development projects got done because the government has a huge role in that, sometimes too big of a role in making sure it happens. So it was zoning, it was incentives, it was permits, you know, it was sometimes making sure that we, you know, kept the streets safe or the sidewalks got done. All of that is critical towards real estate development. And real estate, when you say the two words real estate, it sounds kind of kind of boring to like regular people but when you start talking about like building movie theaters or building like new apartments or new restaurants or retail or, like, yeah exactly yeah or, or retail stores okay then it all starts to get exciting specifically if you're talking about right in their neighborhood and that is real estate development and i know that's what you guys are trying to do in baltimore and i've toured that project with with mark it's electric electrically exciting and i i hope it just goes forward fast you know, it's funny, um, Adrian, Steve Siegel, who's a partner at Weller Development and a very good friend of both of ours, uh, he's a director of development, uh, managing a uh, big piece of a $13 billion public-private portfolio um, during your days. And uh, his experience in being able to bring it up to uh, Washington after everything that he had gone through and experienced working underneath you and your team was, uh, was, was really valuable and has really informed us how to be successful uh, in sort of the second generation of thoughtful and inclusive development. Uh, because I think that, you know, my thoughts always were that you were leading the charge on that. And we, we were all 
on the same page and following that, you know, and, and we just made, we made a lot of change and sure. Was there a couple of things we might've done a little differently? Maybe no doubt, but we did everything we could with what we had. And, and I thought you did a great job leading and, you, and your team was excellent as well. But I think, you know, the, one of the big things we talk about a lot is affordable housing. And I think you being out in Silicon Valley, you see it all the time, you know, in Baltimore, we put a, you know, 20% of our, uh, of our housing that we build off of this project will be affordable. And uh, D.C., we tried really hard to hit big numbers as well. And I'm sure you see it in California. You know, tell, tell us your thoughts of what you learned from that process and how you think about affordable housing, you know, going forward, living out on the West Coast and, and how we can do better kind of on the East Coast as well. Yeah, I'll try to link the two together. First of all, I mean, D.C. at one point, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in D.C., uh, was, you know, it was an economic development disaster. You know, I mean, it was there was no retail being built. There was, there were no restaurants, no residential. And, and what was really problematic, but also, you know, what, what made us, you and I interested in turning things around along with everyone else who was there was that DC had so much potential. I mean, it was always a really diverse place. People came from all over the world, kind of the John F. Kennedy's best and brightest come to DC Literally, I mean, every embassy in the world is there. Every, you know, we have IMF, World Bank, you name it. And and yet we just, you know, when I got when I got elected as mayor in 2006, I went to San Francisco. I was I, I toured LA and San Francisco with Mayor Villaraigosa and Newsom, respectively. And uh, and and I and I went around San Francisco. I was blown away with how many like nice restaurants. Uh, they had, it was just, it was probably like five to one, 10 to one, maybe even 15 to one DC. And I was like, wow, one day DC has to get there. And what's amazing today is if you look at like our downtown or our U street corridor or Shaw or union market, or, or even parts east of the river, certainly the wharf, you know, Navy yard. I mean, that explosion that has happened is, it just goes to show you how much can happen if you invest in a city that has that kind of potential. And now what's amazing is our restaurant scene. It, 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 I mean, it's way better than, than San Francisco right now. I mean, San Francisco has great restaurants, but, but DC is far outnumbers them. And certainly, you know, we have the number of quality restaurants. We have the ambiance in them, the ones that are built on the waterfront. So it's a dramatic turnaround, which leads me to, you know, what you're saying about, about San Francisco, which is a city of enormous potential. I mean, the, the, the entrepreneurship and the innovation uh, that, that comes out of the, the tech ecosystem is probably the, the number one you know, business boom and environment in the history of the world. But the economic development in downtown San Francisco and surrounding neighborhoods, it, it's completely stagnant. It's, it, it, it's borderline disaster. There's, there's no growth. There's, there's really not much new since I took that trip in 2006. And there's a, there's a real need to tap into the potential uh, in the city to see to see more happen. And I don't know, maybe you guys and others will come. But, but what, they, what, what is sorely needed there is some really tough decision-making and decision-making completely free of, 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 of partisan politics and just, just the type of things that are, are good for residents. And and you guys know I wasn't the first mayor to to push that agenda. My predecessor Anthony Williams served two terms, and he was the one who got it all started. So I'll, you know, I mean, 
I'm not saying that you know my administration alone did, did everything, and, and, and the Bowser and William and Bowser and Gray administrations that followed did a lot. So that's kind of what San Francisco needs. It needs, you know, Gavin certainly tried to do a lot when he was mayor, but not much has happened since then. They need a few consecutive mayors to really push the envelope. You know, Adrian, it's it's fun because I was thinking about. There's a line that I use all the time, it being being the leader of of of, uh, of many of these projects and so on, and I got it from you. And then whenever I leave a meeting, uh, I always remind people, make sure it's world class. And you used to come into meetings like kind of in, you'd blow, you'd blow in because you're big that stuff. But all the way out, I said, this looks great. This 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 make sure it's world class, and then you walk out. And uh, I think that's what we're striving for in the development we do. And world class means so many things to so many people. It's not just design and aesthetic. It's also now it's inclusivity and it's thoughtfulness about the people around you and the neighbors and the inhabitants who are already there. You cannot be, you know, super idealistic about affordable housing and not be pragmatic and manage about it. First of all, affordable housing doesn't happen without huge, huge government subsidies. Like it, you, you know, there's no way you're just going to like force people to do it. You have the government has to pony up. Now, the good thing is government does have money, but it, it's all there, there's. It's not just like it comes out of thin air. There are there are, are trade offs. The second thing is, you know, what well, you know what we tried to do in D.C. more than anybody, and that was to fix the education system. It does no good to build. To, to build affordable housing, but not to educate the people in the in the city so that they can they can take advantage of it, because you're not going to ever bring the level of affordable housing down to down to the level of people who don't have an education. That's impossible. So you need to bring mm. the level of education up to a much higher standard where people can get jobs that that pay them a meaningful wage and and that you know and and that they can qualify even for you know moderate rate housing or even uh low rate housing because because that's not going to be free and and the funny thing about it is people who too many people who are you know really like pro affordable housing are not pro education that's way more important and it's a much better solution long term to making sure people can afford to stay in the cities that, that they live in but people put their hands in their pockets you know what I mean? They don't really push for, for radical change in education. You know, because you have five kids and I have three and everyone listens and has kids. You know, our kids have no chance in life if they don't have an education. And so why should why should we not push for that for lower income residents in our cities so that they can live there for generations to come? Wow, Adrian, that's powerful and that's important. And those are great points. I, I really appreciate you bringing that up and, and clarifying. And, and I agree. And the other thing I'll add is, you know, the, the number one community in D.C. that pushed for education reform. You can say a lot of things about our about our administration, but one thing I don't think anybody will doubt is we definitely went went to the mat for education. And whether or not you agree with what we did or not, and the number one group that was behind us was was the business group. You know what I mean? They really got behind us and decided that this was something they wanted to have happen in Washington D.C. And I'll say in San Francisco. And in so many other cities around around the, the country, that's not the case. There's no one clamoring for it. There's no one demanding that the next, the current or next mayor of these cities do anything for education. And poor minority residents are 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 bearing the brunt of that. And 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 so, 
for the for the business community continue to step up or step up more if you're not, and because these politicians will listen to you, but if if no one says anything, they're not going to do anything. So what's the answer in these cities, Adrian? I mean, it's funding, obviously. Is it building schools? Like, what if you're trying to implement a blueprint that you found successful, like, and plop it down in city, you know, X, Y, or Z? What what's the formula? What's the what's the plan? What do you do? Well, it's usually never funding. Funding is usually kind of an excuse or a red herring. Um, you know, it's just like your own private business. I mean, you know, it's management. And so there's really key, tough management decisions that need to be made. And usually they're the same in every school system. First of all, there's usually too many schools and they're usually underpopulated. So just like if you had, you know, mm-hmm. restaurants that didn't have anybody, you know, who was, who was going to them, you don't. You're, you're, those restaurants aren't going to stay open. You're only going to open restaurants where you have you know a lot of, of people. So the first thing you need to do is right-size the system. The biggest thing you need to do, and, and this is where it gets really controversial, is you need to change you know, how, you, uh, how you promote and hire and, and fire the, the people who teach our kids. And that gets to be wildly controversial um, and it shouldn't be because, you know, what, what we are saying essentially is that people who are amazing should be hired first. People who are doing an amazing job should get promoted fastest. And people who aren't amazing uh, in our kids should be the first ones to go. But, in our, but if you look at any collective bargain agreement in this, in this country and really anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, what happens is you are hired – and then within two years of getting hired, you have automatic tenure. And that I didn't, you didn't hear that wrong. I literally said within two years of being hired, teachers get automatic tenure. That is a disaster. In any job in this entire world, if you got automatic tenure, meaning you couldn't be fired, you would automatically become less excited and less passionate and less mm-hmm. uh, accountable in your job. Um, the second thing is, in most school systems, a collective bargaining agreement calls for uh, the last fire uh, to be the the last hire to be the first fire, and you get you get promoted based on seniority, not on merit at all. That's ridiculous. You know I mean, there's there's no efficient organization that has ever worked like that. But that is how we run the organizations to educate our children. And so you end up having people, you know, who just get promoted year after year and get paid more year after year without any assessment of how well they're doing. And it's not even that that you can criticize people on the performance. That that system itself incentivizes people to not do a good job. If you went to Stanford, the local university, and you said to the kids there, listen, all of you are going to get the same grade. All of you are going to get promoted in the same way. Those kids would not perform nearly as well as they, they should. Any system that just promotes people the same way is doesn't make any sense but yet that's how every school system in this country is run and it really impacts lower income and minority kids who need to, someone to show tough love and to have longer school days and to have innovative ways of education and all of that is being thwarted right now and it affects economic development yeah it's 100 percent a structural issue so so what's the what's the solve well it's a 100 percent structural issue but the structure is run by people <laughs> is run and it's managed by politicians. And so here's here's where the rub is. And so just because you asked, and everybody knows my opinion on this. So in cities, 
cities are predominantly Democrat, Democratic. I'm a Democrat. So cities are predominantly run by Democrats. And Democrats uh, are, are the party in our country that is aligned with unions, all unions, but, but, also, but particularly teachers' unions in this example. And so what you will have in the leadership of cities like San Francisco and, uh, and other places is you'll have Democratic politicians who know everything I just said about fixing a school system. And they know that school systems are broken because it's very evident. You go to any urban school and you'll find, you know, half the kids wait two, three, four, five grade levels behind in reading and math, and another half who are just not even going to graduate at all. This is this is in, this is in most school systems in this country, in poor urban school systems, and yet no one has any incentive to do anything because the teachers' unions don't want change. The way that they the way that they have set up the collective bargaining agreement works for promoting their, uh, the, the, the teachers and, and keeps the leadership of the teachers union in place. Um, and, uh, and the politicians depend on the teachers union, not really for financial support, but for, but for validating their kind of leftist um, progressive credentials. And so they kind of do what the teachers union says, despite the fact that they know that there's too many schools and then we need to close schools, despite the fact that they know that there's that there's that, that, that we shouldn't be promoting people, you know, just based on seniority. That there should be a new collective bargaining system, despite the fact that they know that the, that the that the school system is otherwise broken. And so, and so, what we need to do as business owners, as voters, as residents, is call out the Democratic Party because it goes all the way from local city council people all the way up to the White House. Everybody has this same approach and they put their hands in their pockets and do nothing about public education in this country and then what's crazy is people walk around and they're like you know why do we have a crime problem why why do we have you know in, in inequalities and in, in, in people being trained for jobs you know why do we have you know you know housing that people can't afford well it's because we haven't invested you know, in quality educational transformation and reform like we should have. It's switching gears a little bit. You're making all these incredible investments in the future and just wondering how does all that play into the future of cities and how they get built and how they get used and how they're smarter and better for the human race? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, there are, it's funny because I have started to read and you have probably also uh, about a number of different projects for these kind of like city of the future. Like everyone's been kind of talking about city of the future and Google launched sidewalk labs a few years ago. But now it's, you, I, I, I just in the past, just in 2021, I've heard of a couple of new projects where people are literally trying to find land and find revenue to do, you know, massive uh, construction of whole new neighborhoods and cities. We invested uh, in a company called Cul-de-Sac uh, that went through Y Combinator, which is the, the, the biggest accelerator uh, in Silicon Valley, a couple of years ago, and they have the same approach. You know, rebuild a, a city or a neighborhood from scratch, and when you do, what you will what you will do is you'll you'll find the most innovative ways to build sidewalks, do you know. Uh, build up the, the parks and, and trees. Trans, transportation is obviously huge. 
uh, because we do need to find ways to become less car reliant. Uh, but everything from electricity to housing. And so I really like that approach because, you know, when you build something from scratch, then you can really think even more outside the box, if you will. And that will then allow us to go back to some of these older neighborhoods and, and bring some of that new um, innovation to those older neighborhoods uh, in a retrofit kind of way. So I think that's, from what I understand, you guys know better than I, that's what Fort Covington is about. That's what the you know, cul-de-sac is about. That's what some of these newer projects that have started popping up are about. Uh, and so we invest in startups that do all kinds of things, but some of them will absolutely be, you know, the, the type of technology that you can use in a, a new city, even if it's just a, a, you know, a new software program, um, for instance. You talked a lot about politicians having to make tough decisions in order to really make progress in cities. And it seems to us that a lot of times politicians are making decisions based on their interest in their own political careers, not always what's best for the surrounding communities and the cities in which they're working. So how does a, a mayor or a politician come to terms with, with that paradigm of needing to do what's best for the people, but also needing to get reelected? How do they, how do they deal with that? So here's the thing. So we ran lots of agencies. Uh, you know, I had, I think 40 agencies under my purview, police, fire, DC is a strong, DC mayor is a strong mayor. So you, you really have direct authority over all the agencies in economic development. So, I mean, we did the, the, the most controversial decision we did, we did was become the third city city in the history of the country to have the school system report to the mayor. And only Chicago and New York, even to today, uh, have even done that. So it's just daily, wow. it's just daily Bloomberg. Uh, and myself who wanted to and were able to get it done. So, so DC still has an enormous amount of power around education reform. And uh, that's why I'm really proud of my, you know, my successors for continuing to, to fight for it. Um, but make no mistake, we were making really tough uh, decisions in, in every part of the government. So Mark will remember when I took over the government, we had these two kind of quasi government Agencies. One was called Anacostia Waterfront Initiative, and one was called NCRC. Essentially, they were taking government-owned agencies and putting them in the hands of boards that were run by uh, people from the private sector uh, to make decisions. And what I, what I told my team was, we're going to do away with both of these things right away. Because all it did was just confuse decision-making. If you elect a mayor and the mayor appoints a deputy mayor for economic development, and we have permits office and a planning office, why do we need these other boards? And so we got rid of those immediately, which meant, you know, getting rid of the boards and the staff that, that were on these people. But in doing so, you know, projects like Union Market and things around U Street and Georgia Avenue and in the inner cities were able to move, move much faster. And then, because I was telling my agencies, don't you dare slow down economic development. I would tell my perm we hired a permits officer, uh permits director who was amazing and she told her team, listen, we're in the in the business of getting things done. And the flagship project that was managed that was managed by Anacostia Waterfront Initiative was the Southwest Waterfront, which had was nothing had happened in, you know, thirty, forty, fifty years. And now the Southwest Waterfront 
and thanks to you know, my predecessor and my successor and my administration, arguably or inarguably, is the nicest waterfront you know, in the entire country. I was just in Chicago. Chicago has amazing waterfront, so, you know, glad to argue with them. But, but the fact that we have a waterfront that is just as nice as anybody else's, if not nicer, is amazing given where we took it. And that's the type of tough decision-making that you that, that's needed. You, you need authority. You need timelines. You need people who are private sector-minded. You know, Mark talked about Steve, who worked for me and now works for him. I mean, Steve was, I mean, you think we were young. Steve was even younger than us, but he was smart, bright, could have worked for any private sector company. The same was true of Neil Albert and Valerie Santos and everybody who worked under them in the deputy mayor's office. And and that's what you have to do. Stop hiring people who are, you know, just career bureaucrats and career politicians. Hire people who could work anywhere in the private sector. They want to come to the government, but they want to be given responsibility and standards and accountability and that's how cities need to be run. They need to be well managed. And and then you and then it and then it permeates I mean, some of the decisions we made in child welfare and homelessness, my most controversial decisions were in juvenile justice, where we closed down the Oak Hill, you know, prison where we were, we were basically keeping, you know, juveniles in prison and we opened up, you know, a state of the art facility where we could in, in fact try to rehabilitate you. Some of my most controversial decisions we're like in, in, in those areas where affected you know, our, our, our poor, uh, and, you know, inner city you know, neighbors who needed a government that really made tough decisions for them and then just and didn't just tell them what they wanted to be here, but never do anything like governments so often do. For me, it came down to a couple of things. One, it, whether I could live with myself for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? When I was making decisions about like kids in the school system and the child welfare system, juvenile justice system, I was like, okay, even if I'm not mayor, I'm going to be okay. But how could I literally not make the lives of you know poor kids in my city, you know, better if you know, even if it's controversial in some way? And that's that's how I thought about it. And the second way I thought about it was I would literally, when I was on the city council, I would literally sit on the dais and I would say to myself, you know what? What would the residents do? What would my 70,000 residents do if they were sitting in my place? If they, you know what I mean? Not really special interests or my, or what my colleague, what would they literally do? And you know what I mean? And, and that's how I, I would make decisions. And, um, and, and, you know, pe- people had jobs before the, before they got in politics, they'll have jobs after. Um, but I think, you know, how you behave stays with you forever. So Adrian, tell me. Tell me about the American dream. How is it? Is it still alive? How do you feel about it? About America? I mean, I've got so many different reasons to be optimistic. The first is what we've been talking about, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, and that whole region. I mean, you know, being living in the nation's capital, you know, for as many years as I did, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to, to be there. And, you know, I served under two amazing presidents, you know, when I was mayor, President Bush and President Obama who just both did amazing things for the country. I served, I think, for 20 days as city council member with, with Clinton. And, you know, I saw their administrations come through with really smart people who a lot of them stayed in Washington, D.C. And uh, and that was great to see because the best and brightest came from all over the world to make D.C. and the United States of America a great place. So, but I'm even more optimistic about America having lived in Silicon Valley uh, for the better, better part of last, you know, five to eight years and that's because what we do here is we so the best people come from all over the world 
to, to really try to come together to, to build the future. And, um, and listen, <laughs> America no longer has the best you know, education system in the world. We no longer you know, are the best in so many other areas. But in this one area, which is so critical to the, to the future of like human race, be it like you know, innovation around environment or housing or transportation uh, or even just building the next software product, we're, we're, we're far and away number one. I mean, if you are the smartest, you know, your coder in Europe or South America or, or, or parts of Asia and Africa, you, know, you will at least come here uh, or give a shot at coming here to build your company in, in most cases, or you will be influenced by the companies here. And that's something America should be proud of. And to be honest with you, I, I, I it really, I'm flabbergasted sometimes by the anti-Silicon Valley sentiment in uh, in in the in Congress and uh, in the rest of politics. Sometimes it just seems to be so unfairly placed. Like you know, why aren't we proud? Like you know what I mean? Like why aren't we proud? And why are we telling some of this great innovation uh, that's happening in our in our area? So I'm super excited about it. Uh, super excited about the future of the country. We have a lot of tough decisions that need to be made, but you know. People, it, it's it's on us to hire and elect great politicians, and then it's on us to hold them accountable once they're in office. It's funny because you know there's a lot of you know quote unquote you know private sector you know foundations that get set up. You know, I remember when Zuckerberg put a hundred million dollars into you know the the newer school system under uh, when when Cory Booker was there. That was great. But $100 million, which is a lot in the private sector, is nothing in government. You know, my, my school system budget was $1.1 billion when, for one year, just wow. when I was there. And so what's, what's amazing is that, is that, you know, in the whole world of kind of, you know, private sector, the private sector wanting to do good, that we actually allow the government to do such a bad job, you know, in homelessness and child welfare and, and in education. Because it's our money being spent. It's, it's the greatest philanthropy is the, is the taxes that we give to our government, which, which and, you know, which should be spent to improve the lives of lower income residents. And unfortunately, you know, it's they're, they're usually badly misspent, and and those poor residents suffer for it. Well, that's you know certainly um, a lot to take in, and and I refuse to end this podcast on a negative note. So. I'm going to pivot uh, to our Rising Tide moment. Rising Tide dun, moment. Dun, dun, dun. Adrian, if you could, you know, we, we like to feature something positive that's going on in our guests' world. Uh, you know, the rising tide that lifts all the boats. And uh, what comes to mind when we talk about the rising tide for you? I, I, one moment that always stands out for me. I was picked to be a surrogate. To, uh, to Barack Obama when, when he was running his 2008 presidential campaign, which was the most amazing, one of the most amazing things I've ever got to witness. I got to travel with him a little bit and hear him speeches. It was incredible. Uh, and, and John Pacheco, who was my kind of campaign manager and all around just political guru in my campaign, and now he's doing a great job for Mayor Bowser and I traveled up to New Hampshire uh, during the primary. And Obama, you know, was doing well, um, and I, and I and I think he had won Iowa. I think that's how it went. And so we went to New Hampshire, and we campaigned all day in the snow and knocked around. And 
super optimistic. But he ended up losing New Hampshire to Hillary Clinton. And it looked like at the time, it looked like that Hillary Clinton winning that primary, uh, that she was going to just run away with the election. And I remember John and I went to, a, we went to like a big funders reception after the results had come in. We was at some restaurant in New Hampshire. And we went in there and that was probably the gloomiest place I've ever been in my life. Like, let alone, like, set aside, like, you know, a, a, a real tragedy that, that, that you've been in. That was the gloomiest room I've ever been in my life. I mean, people looked like we had lost the election, like it was over. And I was like, wow, this is, so John, let's get out of here. So we went over to the, we went over to the local junior high school uh, where Obama was going to give his speech uh, afterwards. And, uh, and it was packed and crowded, but I think everybody was a little bit on edge. And Obama walked in, and he, and he gave the Yes, We Can speech. For when we have faced down impossible odds, when we've been told we're not ready, or that we shouldn't try, or that we can't, generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. 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 It was such an amazing speech that Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas made an entire song about it, and, and he just ran the lyrics from the speech. And essentially, it was essentially it was like the greatest moment I've ever seen anybody be like optimistic when everyone else around him wasn't so. And it just—I mean—he just, I mean, just kind of had that. And that campaign was just magic. And he went on from there to win so many states, including D.C., Maryland, and Virginia on February 12, 2008. That was an amazing day. And uh, and went on to bring so much hope and, and energy to the country and uh, and for the for the next eight years. So that was like that was just a really exciting kind of like rising tides moment that I, that I happened to be personally privileged to that was historic and that I think meant a lot to the country. That's really incredible. Wow. And that that's a breath of fresh air for us. Yeah, we need that positivity oh and God. that's awesome. Go back and listen to the speech. It's an, it's an amazing speech and uh, Will I Am's song is amazing. That's incredible. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks so much, Adrian. Seeing you in Baltimore, DC, soon. Anytime, open invitation. We'd love to have you. Thanks so much. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much to Adrian Fenty for joining us. What an awesome conversation that was. On the next episode, we'll feature David Manfredi, principal of Elkis Manfredi Architects. He's an incredibly talented architect, visionary, and human being as well. Uh, If you've got a topic you'd like to talk to us about, please drop us a line on social media at Weller Development on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I'm Matt Rienzo, and he's Mark Weller. Keep building, people.